You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi there, my name is Danny Feldman. I'm the producing artistic director of Pasadena Playhouse, and you're listening to the Afro Existential Podcast on the Broadway Podcast Network. We invite your apprehensive listening. We can't afford to waste any time. In this episode, we speak with Danny Feldman, the producing artistic director of the Pasadena Playhouse, about the launch of Playhouse Live, their new innovative digital hub that breaks down physical boundaries and connects artists and audiences together during the coronavirus pandemic. Would you say it was dependent on rock or We'll talk with Danny Feldman, the producing artistic director of the Pasadena Playhouse, after a brief word from our sponsors. It makes it easier to do what must be done. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. If a mine falls on the radio and no one is around to hear it, does the mine make a sound? Does it even matter? Mimes are like podcasters. If a podcaster podcasts and no one subscribes to the podcast, does it make a sound? Does it even matter? No. Because like mimes on the radio, no one cares until they are no longer there. But you can change that. Just one click can make all the difference. You can give a voice to those who have had no voice before. Click subscribe and let them know that you hear them. Let them know that you care. Podcasters are like mimes, and a mime is a terrible thing to waste. Yes. Well, I cannot express how excited we are that you have joined us. And like, this is like, I don't know if you feel like being someone's dream this morning, but you are our dream. <laughs> I'm thrilled and honored to be here. I'm, I'm as excited to talk to you as you are to me. So there we go. Awesome. Thank you so much. We want to talk a little bit about when you came to the Pasadena Playhouse, which I think it was in 2017. Yeah, like late 2016, I started. My first season was a little later than that, but yes, that's when I arrived. So were you involved in the planning of the bicentennial? No, actually, it's a funny story, but we, so we turned 100 years old in uh, 2017, and I got there the 16th, 17th season. It was Sheldon Epps' last season, but I was brought on as part of that transition, and then my season was going to be the next season, which was the 100th year. So, you know, a natural time of transition, but we were, we had some challenges right away when I started. And but one of the early questions, the board came to me and said, you know, what are your plans for the hundredth season, <laughs> and and how we're going to celebrate? And I said, what are my plans? Shouldn't right. you have been worked on working on this for the last ten years? I have to do this, but no, it was a it was a moment of transition, and we, you know, we 
that was not the initial plan that I was going to do something, but we did celebrate it that year. And we, we actually celebrated all year long, but the main sort of cornerstone of that celebration was at the end of that hundredth season, we did a big community wide block. I really wanted to turn it back on the, and we had over 12,000 people show up. We shut the streets down all around the theater. We had all community performances. It was, it was just a beautiful celebration with bands and dance troops and this, but all sort of community art makers coming together. And, and it was wonderful. It was really a beautiful, beautiful celebration of the legacy of theater. And we got to tell a lot of the stories about that legacy and that history during that moment. So it, it worked out well. That's one of the interesting things about researching you and you coming in and I guess, I mean, and really having to take over and sort of re- rebuild, rebrand the theater that I thought, I was like, you really get what it means to what a theater really means. You know, I think a lot of people think the theater is the building, you know, the theater is the building. We put things on stage. You pay us. You come see the things that we put on stage. But it became evident immediately that you realized it was it's about the community. It's about the it's about what's happening in the world. It's about bringing us together. And I thought I really I thought that was so interesting. And I think I think you'll be one of those people. I think the Pasadena Playhouse will be one of these entities that will ultimately be looked at and studied and will go, OK, now what did he do? I think if everybody kind of looked at theater like this, theater would be evolving in a, in a different type of a space right now it would be evolving the way that it should be like, you know, to really to involve the community. I just wanted to say that. I thought it was very interesting. Everything that you're doing and how you're looking at it is all very interesting. Well, thank no, thank you for that. But it, it's really, to be honest, why I decided to leave New York and go back to LA from to take this job was very much rooted in what you're talking about. And it wasn't so much mm-hmm. that I brought, you know, of course I brought my own ideas and my own vision to it. But what I really responded to was the history of this theater. And mm-hmm. it has a, such a unique community connected theater. Number one, its name, which we've changed over time, but its original name was the Pasadena Community Playhouse. Mm-hmm. And this was a time, 1917, you know, it's hard for us to imagine knowing what we know today, but go back in time, there was no actor's equity. That line between professional art maker, theater maker, and community or amateur theater maker, there was no boundary. And so mm-hmm. for for decades on our historic stage, you had community member art makers with mm. professional theater makers putting on shows. And the, the beautiful little old ladies from Pasadena from the church down the street would sew the costume from the in the beginning. So you think now of things like the public theater's public works program at, at the Delacorte in the summer, that's kind of what like every play was at the Pasadena Playhouse. It was a community-wide effort. And frankly, that's how they raised the money to build the building. That's, it was a pure community outpouring and connection to and love of this physical idea of the Pasadena Playhouse. The building, the blueprints of the building, when you look at how the building created and built, they talk about gathering space, community. There was, it, it doesn't quite exist anymore, but the aisles down the theater went connected the orchestra pit and the green room, which connected all the dressing rooms. So after every performance, they would open the doors and the audience and artists could mingle together under the stage. And so it's actually, I always say it's in the DNA of the building of this community effort. And so for me, it was just sort of unlocking it or 
you know, taking that and putting it through my, you know, lens of later on in time, but the the core values and principles of what you were talking about are in this entity, in this institution yes. that is around them. So I, you know, it, very similar to how I feel that I'm standing on the shoulders of Sheldon Epps in terms of he, you know, for 20 years before, let's just say before diversity was cool and getting grants, he really mm. was a maverick in that space at the Playhouse. And it, yes. you know, it, it was an uphill battle for many he dealt with things that I didn't have to deal with when I but he really redirected the theater the DNA of the theater yet again to not just be about comedy, but be about representation and equity and inclusion mm-hmm. on the state and so when I came in it was again I, I have had success in in certain areas but a lot of it is because I'm furthering the hard work that was done for 20 years before I even got there mm-hmm. so in in some ways it was it was easier than some others are facing right now and it's so I think it's so important to know like the history because you're even as you're describing the architecture there was so much thought put into everything you know and as time goes by we may lose the people who understand what all that thought was yeah and so new people come in and they just wipe all of that out wipe it all away do something new and it just it's like all that important stuff like it served a really important purpose and so even though it may change like to know that then as you go forward you go oh this is what this theater is really about that's a hundred percent that that was always my philosophy about you know any job i've had but really looking at you know know where you come from right to look at the legacy now some of that legacy is complicated and and negative right i mean the passing of playoffs was around in 1917, which it shouldn't come as a surprise to people, but it always does when I say it. But we did blackface performances, right? In some ways, of course, we were a theater around in the teens and 20s. and right. But like, you know, to go from that theater to a theater that then, you know, in the 90s hired Sheldon Epps to be artistic director, one of the leading mm-hmm. only artistic directors of color for a while in the country at a major regional theater, you know, that's part of the story. That's part of the fabric of that. We should not bury that. We should not hide right. that. We talk about that. So anyway, yes, of course, we should be looking back and infusing the best parts of art and its founding into the work we do today. Mm-hmm. So where does this come from? Like, where does your like thinking come? from in regards to I want to carry this on I want to understand this it's important to know where I'm from it's probably like you probably don't even think about it but as I'm listening to it it's like I wish everybody thought that way so is that like a parental thing is like where does that you know that's a great question I have you're right I've never thought about that I mean I I suppose you know history is always important to me particularly being in a city like Los Angeles I grew up in LA we don't have the same legacy history of a New York City or some of the East Coast older cities I mean, we're still, you know, a fairly new city relatively, but I always love the sort of historical things about LA. There are some really old buildings in LA and it has a really interesting, diverse culture from the beginning of it. But I, you know, challenge me with that question. That's a good question. I, I also think part of it is that I'm, you know, both of my my parents, my father was an immigrant who came here. My mom was actually born in Los Angeles, but her family, they were all Holocaust survivors that came over. And I think that legacy and that imprint of knowing your history and how that shapes you and, and how you learn from that and how the world can learn from that, that has always been a part of my identity and how I look at the world. So 
of course, I, I guess I bring that theater. But most importantly, at the Playhouse, it was like sort of jaw dropping when I started delving into that and understanding, you know, you I find jewel little, little, little jewels that, that perk up all the time. Like, you know, the first person to ever speak at the Pasadena Playhouse on the on our on the stage in 1917, when we opened the first piece, Martha Graham started. She happened to be in LA and started it. Agnes DeMille, a famous, you know, Oklahoma choreographer, directed at the Pasadena Playhouse in the early 20s. Like that. So it was this interest, you know, Tennessee Williams, there were world premiere Tennessee Williams plays at the Pasadena Playhouse. And he was there, you know, working probably around the time he was writing Glass Menagerie. He was there with student productions of some of his early work. So the crossroads of the American theater, a lot of them went through the Pasadena Playhouse. And I found that so exciting but more importantly no one knew that story right and so like any theater maker like all of us we love telling a good story <laughs> we love finding <laughs> a good story and right. discovering it and creating it and figuring out how to tell it so to me it was just an extension of that of this is a great story that is yet to be properly told in a in a robust mm-hmm. way and I found that opportunity to be thrilling but you know it's really interesting to to take the historical part of it the things that are part of the DNA and shift and make something new you know and that is what's happening now with playhouse live right you know you guys had came we we have these challenges that we're dealing with now the pandemic social unrest and can you tell us a little bit about what that shift was like and how you pivoted towards creating playhouse live in this time and was it something that was the people who were i guess there's a board of directors (laughs) there's always a board of directors there's always a board (laughs) receptive to these new like these changes that were going to be happening yeah i think i i wish i could you know i would love to tell a lovely story about how easy and fun and and seamless it all was and it wasn't it was it was deeply challenging it was very hard it like like most theaters in the country when the pandemic hit we had to make very challenging decisions we furloughed about 50 percent of our staff we're still covering their health benefits to this day, but but you know it, it was a challenge to to think about first even how are we going to time. We are not one of those theaters that has had a very large endowment or you know sits on a pile of cash for emergencies. Part of my time at the Playhouse has been digging us out of a financial situation. And so while we we made tremendous progress on that, we were not as solid as some of Tushar. Once we navigated the initial shock of the realization we are not going to be able to sell tickets or do performances for a long time. We always, the passing place has always been sort of a place of innovation. And I thought, and we were starting to have conversations with other theaters. Everyone was talking early on. This was like April, May, but how are we going to pivot digital? How are we going to pivot? And what you saw right away was people jumping on the Zoom theater bandwagon, which if we can all remember back to those days, it was sort of novel and people were watching and it, it felt like a really... I don't know. I felt like it was a really beautiful way that artists and audience were both reaching for each other and they were connecting on the sort of Zoom pieces. Now, by far, I think most of them were not what I would call artistically satisfying thing, but they were a means of connection and which, which again, the always bet on theater. We're like, in, I, I, I said on a Zoom once that we're all like cockroaches that like, we're never going to go away. We're just going to figure <laughs> it out. And I think that's what you saw right in the beginning, right? And at the playoffs, we didn't do, we didn't participate in those immediate things because we had, we had our eyes on a different end. And what we started conversations about were what can we be doing in the digital space that number one matches the quality that we have been putting on our, and Zoom did not meet that criteria, period. So we started saying, well, what meets that criteria? How does it need to be? What needs, what 
is the kind of content that isn't just a one-to-one relation about we did a play on our stage, we're now going to put that play digital, but something that was native to the delivery, native to the digital, which means we're in new territory. Is it a play? Is it a movie? Should it belong on Netflix? What the hell is it? And that ambiguity I found really intriguing. And I started a lot of conversations with artists, much smarter than I am, saying, how do you define that ambiguity? What would you, that isn't just your one-man show film, but created in a way that is unique to the the benefit, unique to the advantages you can have by filming something and not just capturing a live. And so I still don't have the answer to that, but that's where we started. At the same time, I have to confess, before the pandemic, we already had a head start because we, my marketing director, Corey Kelly and I, had talked for a long time about creating a digital hub that was for our membership. We we really, when I started my first real season, we relaunched and reconceived a theater's membership model. So it's not a subscription model, it's a different kind of membership model than most have. And so we're always looking at how to do benefits and how to create community with our members. So we had laid the groundwork to have an online platform for our members. So a lot of people were just figuring out what kind of content, where are we going to put it, how are we going to do it? We sort of had the aha moment of, we've already thought of this. We already did the work. We found, you know, and so we very quickly were able to create not just digital content, but a platform that started evolving our thinking earlier than probably others. While everyone was looking at just shows, we actually started asking questions of what would a theater's digital home look? Not just Mm. what the plays, but what is the benefit of having an online hub, an online, and what is the value that can come from? So what I mean by that is, while others are simply doing digital shows, we conceived of something a little more robust. Yes, we have pay-per-view digital show, starting with still our first piece that's up right now. But we also have original. We also have, so that includes documentary. That includes an actor interview where unrelated to our work, it's just about the theater world behind the curtain. What process? Because we as theater makers sort of forget that the public loves those things. <laughs> When we do talkbacks with actors, 40% of our audience stays for that. When we, you know, and normally we treat them as little marketing videos. Here's a video with the director for five minutes. Well, what if we could do a documentary about the making of our print of Little Shopper? A 20 minute documentary, see the thought process that went into the creation of them. So all of a sudden there became this other opportunity to tell different stories. What if we took that historical archive? We have the lar- one of the largest, I think it's the largest, it's hard to quantify archive of any theater in America. We have production photos, programs, even some props going back to 1970, every show we've ever. What if we could take that archive and turn it to stories told digital? So you could see it comes to life in it. So you see, we were thinking not just about shows, digital shows, but additional other layers that could deepen the experience. And then the other big step we are looking at was could we use this as a resource for us? Could other theaters put their high quality work together with ours so all of our members and all of our benefit from everything? And that was the hardest step about it. And that's very much a still ongoing step because not surprising, but but when I called a lot of my colleagues all around America into theaters, you know, by June, everyone's heads were in a different place. Some theaters were like, we're back in the fall. Some theaters were like, we're back in January. I think the West Coast theaters, we talk a lot. And I think we were probably on the more progressive side not surprising, we all got the sense this was going to be much longer. And so we decided to make this investment in something more robust because we realized this is at least a year. This is at least a year mm-hmm. of our primary way of delivering programs, of serving serving the community, 
more importantly, paying art to create during a time where just our field is decimated, the workforce is decimated. So that was really the evolving thinking. Again, I made it sound very like, oh, we knew what we were doing. A lot of the time we didn't. We started at one place where I started in May. If I went back and found my notes from April, May, what came out in September when we <laughs> launched was very different. Of course, the 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 social unrest that you referenced with the murder of George Floyd happened in the middle of our planning stage. And that sort of changed the conversation about what work we should be putting up. We always pride ourselves in the playhouse and work that is in dialogue with our community, in dialogue with the times. In the beginning, that was about COVID. We are in dialogue with this, this plague that is that is challenging all of us. That changed in the summer, the beginning of the summer. There was sort of, you know, uh, the civil unrest, I think, top of people's minds in our community. Mm -hmm. And so we had to pivot to make sure the work we were doing also addressed that. And frankly, the digital space allowed us to pivot much quicker than a season planning process. You know, we have to plan our seasons a year plus in advance. With digital, we didn't have to. That happened. We commissioned a piece. We launched it on end of September. It was that fast of a timeline. And so it allowed us in many ways to be much more. Well, I need two things. I need you to give me a lotto number, like a three digit number and like an investment tip because you seem to be like ahead and seeing what's in the. Oh, it's not. Listen, it, I appreciate that, but it's, it's much more simple than that. It, it really had to do with take away the emotion and the grief we're all experiencing because this is a moment of grief where we we are have to let go sort of the the loss of the potential the loss of what we thought the year would be the loss of of all of that and that clouds the mind because it is painful it's challenging it feels like you're not standing on solid ground i'm experiencing what everyone else is experiencing but when you when you can manage that and think about that and compartmentalize the questions we started asking really early at the beginning was when do we think we will be back? And if you read sci science, here's a novel idea, look at science, and you read things like consumer surveys and, and when the community gold star, that ticketing company has twice a once a month, a survey that comes out. When are people, what's their readiness for to come back? So when you look at that, when you read the science about when they thought vaccines would happen, and then you ask people, and I ask people every time someone asks me when the theater's coming back, I would ask them this question. How long after a vaccine is widely available will it take for you to feel comfortable to jam? And most people said between six months to a year after the vaccine. is Well, most reports said the vaccine won't be available till January. So we understood the long game nature. And once you sort of got your head around that, then it's just about adapting and listening and figuring out. There's no sort of secret sauce. We didn't know better than anybody else. You're just listening and looking, and we're still doing that today. You know, I think now when people say, when are we back? I, I, my first answer is when it's safe, when it's safe for the performers, when it's safe for the audience to be there. But I think we all, maybe we're not talking about it. I think we all realize that's going to be far longer out from right now than we ever thought. So it's just Absolutely. listening. Well, that's, and you're right. It's the emotion. People get so stuck in. And I think sometimes it's hard to pull people out of that, that you have to work with. It, that, that's the challenge. The challenge you asked, how was, how was this process of creating this platform? It was navigating with a small, getting people through the grief, the pain, the uncertainty that we're all experiencing and focused on forgetting all of the rules. Not a single person on my staff, my wonderful tiny band staff, has ever launched a digital network. None of us have. We don't, I mean, I, I basically said to the team, we're all interns, right? It's like, use Google. I don't know, go figure it out, right? And we made a lot of mistakes. And we, 
we figured it out. But the good news is like, I always say this, it's not rocket science. Like, you know, I had a college professor who used to say to me, dumber people than you have succeeded at this and figured it out. And that's a great mantra to think about. Like, you just got to put the time in and figure it out and forget about the risk of being wrong. Just try and do it. And we'll see what comes out of it. And and getting people over that hump to just set it free and say, well, what if? Let's try this is very challenging when your livelihoods are at stake, when people are worried about getting a paycheck and, and feeding themselves and seeing what is going on around. That's what I think clouds the common sense that you, of course, you look at evidence, you're scientific about it. You don't go on emotion and, you know, you go on sort of gut, which is derived from inputs based on your intellect and your experience. Right. And it, there's a resetting that, ha- that has happened. And frankly, I think different people are on the different spectrum of how quickly and, and how far they've come. We'll be right back after a brief message from our sponsors. We're back with more of our conversation with Danny Feldman, the producing artistic director of the Pasadena Playhouse. I think everyone agrees, and most people want, to come back to a new American theater. But what is that? We've all spent so long saying the model doesn't work. This isn't the the system that favors everyone in an equitable way. Our audiences aren't as representative of our communities as we all want. I don't think you have anybody on any side of any American theater that disagrees with those statements. This isn't like, you know, red state, blue state. But I think the challenge is what is the path? What are the ways? Like, where are the models that, and I always look for, where are those models? Where are my inputs for what we should be striving? And the truth that I think so many of us are up against is they don't exist. We have mm-hmm. to create, which means we might have to create wrong ideas. How many times in in all of our lives have we said, oh, if I just had a little more time, I could <laughs> right. focus on these bigger right. picture things. Right. Well, right. the train is stopped. Stopped. <laughs> it stopped. And we were all at such a high fever pitch right before all this. Yeah. Like you could feel it, like the world was bursting and even your downtime was like, well, let me run and vacation real hard. That's you know, right. like it was, <laughs> it was an ex- Don't you think we've lost? I mean, I, I've noticed on myself, we've lost, lost attention span as a society. We've lost the ability to have complex, deep thinking about things. We you don't know? have the time. We don't, you're we not have, given the time. Right. And and we're, no. you know, the inter- internet flipping through our phones, doing this. It's like, it's a different piece. And I, I think that's a wonderful cycle to be broken. And I think solutions and the kind of systemic change that I think so many of us want in the world, but let's focus it on our theaters. Eco. It's not fast. It's not something that I can sit down tonight and write a new plan of a new way forward. It takes painful, deep thoughtfulness, lots of conversation, lots of walks in the woods, (laughs) and letting your mind figure it out. And I think the sort of double whammy in the American theater of being shut down because of COVID, financially being really, really challenged. This is a more challenging moment than I think we've all collectively experienced in the American theater. And then on top of that, the civil unrest this summer and the We See You movement all sort of happening at the same time is the moment to digest, you know, and I I think those, you know, I really have been vocal about urging my colleagues and others in the field, 
who are demanding fast answers. I'm not saying we need to spend the next five years looking. I'm just saying like the kind of change we're talking about takes deep soul searching <laughs> and deep thinking about how to reinvent. We have the time. This is the time to do that thing. This is the time for me to really, really digest this and take it in and understand and move forward in a new. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that is what's going. You know, I, I'm really, really hoping that's what's going. And I'm, I'm optimistic. You bring up something that I'm curious to know about is the not the financials of it. Not that you got to pull your books out. That's not I'll what I'm. I'm very curious. I mean, especially with the current administration, where there's already been this, I think, a hard hit on funding. You know, from from a federal level in regards to art funding. But then with COVID, things you know hitting people's pockets so hard. How do you create a different model going forward? Or do you create a different model going forward to keep the lights on? Yeah, I love that question. And I think that's the question not discussed enough. Pulling all the way back, what we have to all recognize is that I believe the majority of the leadership in the American theater want change. And if it was profitable for them, (laughs) if there was a financial way to do it, that change would happen. And I'm not saying that all of our problems are due to money, but many of us are living on the edge and barely making. And so so the first question about, do we need to have a new financial model without question? The government funding question in my lifetime, the government has never been a significant source of funds. I don't think there's a significant change under this current administration than in the past. Mm. The, the amount the NEA gives is nothing <laughs> compared to other countries in terms of their federal system supplying funding for the arts. Mm. So whether we are a Democrat president or a Republican president, the arts funding nowhere near what it to be for many, many. So that's number one. So it relies on a system of tax deductions and donations as allowing theaters to be nonprofits. And that's part of that. That's part of our economy. But the, the, the problem I believe that the American theater has, really the regional theater has, is you have a lot of board members, donors, audience space around America that Unlike other uh, areas, we have a commercial counter. So mm-hmm. go with, we have Broadway, we have Hamilton. Okay. Okay. There's no commercial up. There's no commercial symphony. But in theater, we have the commercial theater and the nonprofit. Mm-hmm. We don't have commercial museums and non-commercial. All of those are just nonprofit. So the public understands that in those areas, we got to fund it. We got to fund it. We got to fund opera. We got to fund museum. Theaters, you still have people who maybe they're not saying these words, but in their heads go, well, if Hamilton's making money, why aren't you making money at the past? And are you charging $800 that, a ticket? Because we know right. we'd all come and see that. That's right. <laughs> and, and and exactly right. And why aren't you, you know, plays make money on Broadway? Well, we all know Broadway, most things do not make money on it. But oh. I get it. And it really tells this negative story that is not truthful that arts administrators in nonprofit theaters don't know what they're doing or they're doing mm-hmm. something wrong. It's completely ignoring that we are doing something very different. We are in service of a, the work we are creating costs significantly more, is not commercially motivated, is about actually moving the American theater forward. You know, if you look at the models, there just couldn't be, couldn't be different. We run shows for five weeks, not for five years, right? So it's just, it's different. And and that needs to be communicated. That story needs to be told. The case for support on the greater level of the American theater, we need to do a much better job of them. The business models in terms of supporting it have to be completely rethought in that way. Because what has happened, the, the pathway the theater has gone is we've started squeezing more and more money at a fewer. And when you have a subscription base that is responsible for 
almost all of your money for your donors and you know your donations and your annual money coming. They, in many ways, you're beholden to, right. right? And I don't mean that in a like a political donation way. I just mean when 80% of your people are giving you the money, you know, they're, when they're giving you the money to operate and do your thing, you're catering to that group of people, obviously. Right. What we're hitting with now is, but that group of people is not representative of others. That group of people is, is a pretty monolithic group. Of, and so when theaters are tasked with changing and making change, how does that work? How do those things butt up against each other when a certain segment is funding the majority of your work? How and do want you want to see a certain thing and you know what they'll come for? And, and, right. and, and you can probably stretch that group, you know, 10 degrees this way, 10 degrees this way. One, you know, maybe, maybe once a year you can do something really out there, but then you got to come back and give them, you know, Christmas Carol again to make them happy. There's nothing wrong with that because those people are valid and should be served in the same way. I'm not Absolutely. like, but, but what happens when that comes with a cost of excluding others and how do we reconcile? How do we, you know, are we asking that group to be more supportive of making the tent because they have more resources? Are we going to outside that group to finding resource and financial support to make the tent bigger? Those are all the questions where we have to ask, but we can't, we can't just sort of reduce this all to a like, we need to make change in the American theater. The majority of the audiences are older and white and they're blocking this change. I think that's really reductive and a harmful way of thinking. I think by and large, well, I'll talk about my audience that, you know, they're welcoming of, of the diversity that's been on our stage because it started 20 years ago, you know, 25 years ago when Sheldon Epps was there. So it's not about people don't want to see X, Y, Z. People don't want to do this. It's it. We just have to really go back and rethink our systems and models and not be afraid to break some glass. That was a long winded answer to that, but I, I, I got off on a tangent, but I, I feel strong. No, that was great. I, one thing that I sort of took away after doing the deep dive into the Pasadena Playhouse for this interview and the Playhouse Live is A, I was really struck by your educational component. I thought that was super interesting, you know, going back to this history of education at the Playhouse. But it, something struck me that I thought, this is seems like a way of making new theater goers. There was something about, like I could feel that like, all the different components to this is like a, a way of creating people to really be theater enthusiasts, but also a way of, of, of teaching people how to talk about theater, teaching people how to have ownership over it to be engaged. Blaine and I once did a show at the Black Theater Festival in North Carolina, right? Black Theater Festival, ever, I can't remember if it's African-American, Black child, who knows what we were then. But <laughs> when we went, you know, you get this narrative that African-Americans are not engaged in the theater in a certain type of a way, right? But when you go down to this theater festival, honey, people are there to see theater. <laughs> like they are okay. there. Like they want to talk. Yes. They want to talk artists. When you talk about the talk back, they want to talk to the artist in a very intellectual way. And it was one of the best times of my life being a theater performer to to be involved in it because it wasn't just sort of this celebrity of it all like oh let me touch you they wanted to know you know <laughs> what yeah, exactly I mean, I think the, character based I, think, I think what you're talking about is the key to all of this i think it's right. that it's our community has to have ownership of everything the building you know i i remember a conversation when i was at labyrinth theater company i had i had a conversation with george wolf at the time and he talked about how when he first got to the public he would give the theater for free to different groups different ethnic groups in the community to have their public events in the lobby right not even theater events why 
So they felt that that was theirs, that this was a place that they had ownership and stake of, and that the boundaries of theater, the gates to entry, when you walk into a theater, when you, you know, all the things that, that, that a lot of people don't think about when you walk into the theater, we have one of the best usher volunteer usher quarters in America, these lovely volunteers, they're wonderful. However, they're all elderly because they have free time, white people from Pasadena. What is that to someone coming up that makes you feel other when you walk into that's not their fault. They're lovely volunteers helping, <laughs> right? So we worked a little bit on that. We have a lot more work to go to get local high school kids to also stand next to them and be a part of welcoming people taking tickets, because that's key. We actually see in surveys, we ask the question, do you feel welcome? And we've seen that just those little changes, the way we talk about it, move the needle on that question for younger people coming saying, do I feel welcome here? Yes, because there's not, it's sort of re removing barriers of entry, removing, you know, Stephanie Ibarra and Dominique Moroso, who put the note in her program when she did her play at Lincoln Center, which was about policing of audience behavior that we talk about, you know, you need to be quiet when you watch a show, these sort of rules that are on people. Those are all things to me that are barriers to making our community feel welcome and their and their restrictions as opposed to opening doors. And, and so, yeah, to your point, it's about making people feel connected to the work and removing the sort of, I think there's an embedded notion that theater is, there's a class in, right? Theater is an upper class thing. It is not for me. And making it actually have ownership in the, that this is for all of us. It's made by everyone. And giving back the space. We we are working hard on having community members form on our stage. That's so that a, a building is co-owned. The building is owned by the sport, not just for the highest levels of art. I think the public theater works and a lot of people doing those kinds of programs around the country really are about that exactly and i think that has tremendous impact that's so interesting because you said the like these rules that are put upon theater and so many of them a lot of them are cultural we did a or did a reading at national black theater in harlem and it was 99 percent african-american and it was like church because there was like call and response there was laughing there was stomping of the feet it was just people were rolling out they were talking to the characters and you know that's how you know people are listening and that they're really into it we did a, a new york theater workshop with a 95 percent caucasian audience and it was silent but it there was were like different catholic it, church it was, it was like it was catholic, like catholic church. church it was church <laughs> but it was like catholic church but Very then special. we you know then they do a talk back afterwards and you could still tell the people were really into it and they were asking the questions and they were really thinking yeah. about it. Yep. so yep. i would imagine that each culture experiences and does theater differently i i think this idea of norms i mean i'm very intrigued by it and interested in it and frankly, our first show on Playhouse Live was, was Javon Johnson, just spoken word poetry. You know, I, when I was at Labyrinth Theater Company, we did a play called A Sucker MC by Craig Mumsgrant. And it was a spoken word one-man show with, with DJ Rich Medina in the back spinning as, it was great, Jenny Coons directed. But I learned at that time by doing that experience that spoken word in particular and that art form was not seen by audiences predict mainstream, quote unquote, theater elite as a legitimate form of theater. And that always stayed with me. And it always sort of, it would, they, that it was treated as other, it was treated as, as less than in some, and, you know, we all probably have some ideas about why that is and culturally what has evolved, but I became fascinated by it. You know, I thought if we were doing Shakespeare sonnets on stage, a one man show of Shakespeare poetry, no one would say a word about that. But yet, 
you know, spoken word, maybe it, poetry is not seen as legitimate theater. So Javon Johnson is brilliant, brilliant artist. We talked and I was like, I think your work belongs on the stage just as much as Shakespeare's sonnets belong on our stage. And so we put this show together and part of it was, was you know, responding to the moment our country's work so eloquently and, and provocatively speaks. But more importantly to me, it was about saying this art form of spoken word poetry belongs on this historic. It has every right to claim as any other play by Tennessee Williams or this. It has been marginalized and been seen as other, but it's time to put the flag in the ground saying this belongs here. This has every right to be here just like any other do. And that's why we filmed it using the theater as a character in the piece, essentially, where you see the theater, you see the empty seats, you recognize the moment going in. And so anyway, that was, I was very passionate about that. It stemmed from my work back in New York, but about using this art form. But I'll say we still, I can't, I can't claim that by us doing that show, we solved all these problems. We immediately faced uphill battles, getting critics to read. No way. To get press coverage on it. Now it's a busy time. There's an election. A lot of theaters are doing digital stuff. I'm not saying it's all about that. But I still think, you know, we are confronted with the systemic inequities in our country when we do a spoken word poetry piece on stage. It is not treated with the same spec or critical analysis as other things. And so I am not deterred by that. I am actually, I dig deeper because of that. But, you know, it's it's still there. We're, we are immensely proud of it. I, I love it. I think it, it's just profound. And it's the, speaks, it, it speaks to Javon Johnson's beautiful work and the director, Johnny Jackson's just extraordinary vision in getting at what we talked about at the very beginning, which is what is a digital theater designed for the medium that sort of straddles and doesn't play by any rules, right? There's obviously steady cam shots where we surround him and move around. Well, obviously we had to get everyone out of the room and we shot those. So it wasn't completely shot through like a live show normally. But our audiences don't expect that now. Our audiences expect a higher level Hamilton when you watch the filming of Hamilton. We all know they did that over multiple performances. They edited the best takes. They shot it that way. And that's part of what made it such a, an enriching experience to watch it. So we tried to capture some of that in the work and we're filming next week uh, a couple more pieces are So yes. That's what I want to know about. But first I want to say a piece that I saw about of Javon Johnson has stuck with me. Like it actually, every time I think about it, I kind of get a little bit misty. I can't imagine that somebody wouldn't see this and see the power of uh, the theatrical performance and want to talk about it. Moving forward with your Playhouse Live series, what's next? I'm very interested in putting stuff out in the world, getting inputs back, what is working, what isn't working or interesting. Why isn't it working? Is it piece itself? Is it the marketing? Is it the, you know, there, there's an election going on, no one's paying attention. What you know, just sort of taking all of that in and then responding and coming up with the next. The Playhouse has a initiative that I started called the, the American Musical Initiative. And it's basically an exploration of the American musical, one of our unique um, original American art forms and exploring it with a contemporary life. So our, our big production of Little Shop of Horrors that happened last year, that was part of this project. Our production of Ragtime the year before was part of the project. And so we talked about how do we adapt that project for the digital. So the next piece that we're filming is actually doing a, a deep exploration of the Broadway composer, Jerry Herman, sort of like the exact furthest point you could get away from Javon Johnson's spoken word piece is Jerry Herman, Hello Dolly, Mame. Yet, you know, he's one of the icons of the American theater. And how do we look at his work with a contemporary lens, a sort of a career overview? Of course, the big Hello Dolly revival um, with Bette Midler happened. 
but how do we look at his work and create a digital that honors him, that is entertaining, where you get to see some of the greatest hits, but you also understand the man and the work a little bit. So that's the next piece we're filming, which again is exploring to me this digital art form of, we could have just done, you know, a musical review. We could have just done one of his shows and filmed it. But this is a new piece that Andy Einhorn is putting together with us that is sort of a hybrid of PBS special documentary with performance. And so we're having fun playing with all of that and figuring that out. And we're now planning the programming that you'll see on the platform in January, February, March, April, and beyond. And I don't have all those answers yet. Any success I've had on our stage, I wish I can say it was all me, but almost every single time without fail, it's because I've worked with extraordinary artists who take either an impulse I have or whose impulse I hear from them and help amplify in a way. And so now we are spreading Javon's work far and wide and this next and really talking to our core family of artists and others of what does this spark within you? Mm -hmm. What is the next phase of what, you know, regardless of the outcome of this election, we I think most people would agree that we will probably be more divided than we are right now, which is really hard to stomach. You think of that as a country. Can it get more divided than this? I I'm not being cynical, but I think it can. So with with knowing what's coming, with looking ahead at the inputs and seeing what's coming, what are artists trying to say? What is a way, mm. you know, are can we be a digital convener where we bring people together? And what does that look like? Mm. How do we create, just like we do in our building, a space for dialogue, a space for coming together, a space for people having shared experience and feeling more connected to one another? That that's an incredibly powerful. And I don't take that for granted that I'm in a seat of power that allows militate that. And I choose to use that for good. I choose to use that to bring people together as a divide people. And, and I think we will have the greatest we have ever faced in bringing people together in the coming months. So what are artists having, you know, how do artists fit in that? What great ideas are coming from our wonderful body of theater artist country to address that? That's what I'm looking That's exactly what I wanted to hear. I mean, all of us need it, it, right? It's, it's, we've had the reckoning, we've had the blow up, we've had this. And I, I think to forget about the American theater, I think as a nation, I'm so much more interested right now in reconciliation and in figuring out how to move forward and identifying shared purpose, right? It's lost the sense that these debates that we have, I'm getting political y'all. Okay. So the debates that we have, (laughs) you know, in the best version of our country are about, we all want the same thing, a better, more equitable, more just nation. We have different ideas how to get there. Let's hash it out. Let's be passionate, but let's be aligned that we're all moving this direction. And we've lost that. We've completely lost. And the losing of that filters down to things like the American theater and other. I think we need that realignment of this is where we're all going together. We have different visions and ideas of how to get there. And we're going to take, it's not a straight line. It's a wobbly path. But how can we make progress? How can we now come together with what we know, with the pain we've all, you know, been exposed that so many of us in the country have experienced. Let's let that out. Let's talk about that. But then let's figure out how to understand one another, to create plans on how to move forward. And I think that is the essential job of the American coming year. And I think what's so beautiful about your digital platform 
going back to community experience is that it opens it up to a global That's right. audience. So now the audience becomes infinite of who yeah. you can reach and who you can touch and who can say, oh, I have something to contribute. Oh, I am, you know, a part of theater, you know, to get involved in it at every age and juncture and to be a part of it. I mean, that was sort of the idea is can you create something, you know, the, the, the general thought was if you create something that is that fills the spectrum so much in terms of a kid show, a spoken word show, a Jerry Herman show, that it almost dilutes because it's so broad. But I actually think that if your metric and your through line is world-class quality, if your through line is everything you see here will be at a height, heightened level of quality, that that that's what people come for. And yeah. they'll come for kids programming or musical theater or spoken word. It allows it to hit that global audience with, with multiple perspectives and different types of work. And I'm very much intrigued by that because that's the kind of work I respond. You know, I like going on adventure with seeing things that I've never experienced. I think everything you've said is such an incredible message. I hope you'll do a TED Talk. You have a wonderful perspective how to move forward. We're, we're all in this together. I mean, we're all, this is this is the thing we all, we forget sometimes, but we all cherish the American theater together. And it's our responsibility, not the artistic directors alone, not this. It is our collective responsibility. And it's, yes. it needs tending to, it's a garden. It needs to be constantly weeded and tended to, and not, it's not just one person's responsibility. It's all of our. Every word is true. I swear it. That completes our second episode in our Creating Art in Crisis series. It's all finished. I finished it. We hope it inspired you as much as it did us. Well, what do we do now? You can also visit us at afroxpodcast.com. That's afroexpodcast.com to see some of the work that we've created during the pandemic. Join us again for our next interview with another artist who is creating art during crisis. Yes, it'll be like old times, darling. Until then, have a great day on purpose. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.